Thanks, guys. Welcome to Easter at Union Chapel. Glad you're here uh, this evening. I'm Pastor Greg. As uh, many of you know, we've been rehearsing the Gospel of John the last uh, several weeks, considering the miracles of Jesus. There are actually seven miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And today we conclude with the seventh of those miracles. It is the resurrection or the resuscitation of Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days. And I hope that we uh, might learn something about resurrection power today on this important resurrection weekend. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 32 to 44. If you don't have your Bibles, that's great. Uh, We'll project the words on the screen so you can all follow along. This very meaningful text. So as you're able, may I invite you to stand to hear God's word. John chapter 11 beginning at verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. May God inspire us tonight through this powerful story. You may be seated. Let me give you some history. On August uh, 1814, 1814, the British Army, led by General Robert Ross, marched into Washington and began to systematically burn all of the buildings, the Treasury, the Capitol, the President's Palace, we now know as the White House, and the Library of Congress. Several months later, January of 1815, Congress set out to rebuild the nation's library by approving the purchase of the largest personal collection of books in the United States, which happened to belong to one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who once said, I cannot live without books, um, but was apparently willing to sell them for $23,950, sold them back to uh, to the federal government for the Library of Congress. Something that you may not know, today the Library of Congress houses 35 million books, 35 million It also is a custodian to six and a half million pieces of sheet music, 5.4 million maps, 13.6 million photographs, and in case you care about things like this, they add, every day that the Library of Congress is open, they add about 11,000 volumes to the collection. Now, you may not get anything else out of the sermon, but at least you've learned some fun facts about the United States Library of Congress. Now, here's, here's to the point. Let me talk about two of the books that are currently in the Library of Congress that were part of Jefferson's collection. 
The first was a Bible. It was printed in Geneva, Switzerland in 1555, and it radically changed the way we read the Bible. The French printer and scholar named Robert Estine had the novel idea of adding numbers to create chapters and verses in the Bible. So the next time you cite chapter and verse, the next time you take out your John 3.16 sign and show it at the parade or something, you owe it to Estine's Biblia because it was the first Bible to have chapter and verses. Before that time, 1555, we just had the books of the Bible, which were just in paragraph form. There were no chapters assigned and no verses assigned, and so we owe that to Mr. Estine. The second book that I want to talk about is also a Bible. It is the Jefferson Bible, as it has become known. Thomas Jefferson had a profound appreciation for the teachings of Jesus. We see this in his writings. The, 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 the moral teachings and the ethical teachings of Jesus are clear. Uh, Jefferson, as you know, was one of the architects of some of our founding doc, uh, documents that, upon which this country has been resting now for, for these many years. But he was also a child of the Enlightenment. When Jefferson was a 16-year-old first-year student at the College of William and Mary, Professor William Small introduced him to the writings of the British empiricists. John Locke and others of the Enlightened movement had enthroned reason and logic as Lord. And Jefferson did likewise. And the Enlightenment uh, issued forth in this ultimate reality based on reason and logic. And it became a worldview that many held in the day. Now, let me just stop right here. And I want to just mention this again. That there is a natural tendency, a natural human tendency for us to explain away what we can't explain. Something happens, we can't quite explain it. We try to explain it away. There must be some reason for that. And so we explain it. Away, But when you do, you lose the mystery. And if you lose the mystery, you can also lose the miraculous. You can try to reduce God to the logical constraints of your left brain, which is common in today's world. And you can try to create God in your own image and put him into a box uh, that, that uh, fits tightly around your own logic and reason and your own human intellect. And you can try to keep bo- uh, God boxed up that way. But what you will have is you will have a God with a lowercase g who looks an awful lot like you and talks a lot like you and thinks like you and acts like you. In fact, will be just a mirror image of you, maybe just with a little more power, but essentially the same. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer, a great man of God, a great scholar. He said, what you end up with is a God who can never surprise you, never astonish you, never overwhelm you, and never transcend you. And I might add, a God who can never do miracles. And just for the record, on this Easter weekend, I want to go on record and say that I do not believe in the God that Jefferson and the other enlightened brothers have designed for us. Uh, That is not the God of the Bible. It is not the God I believe in. I believe in a God who is high and exalted. I believe in a God who is omnipotent. And omniscient. I believe in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even think, according to the power of God that works within us. I believe in a God whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts and whose ways are higher than my ways. I believe in a God whose love I can't possibly comprehend, whose mercy I can't possibly deserve, and whose power I can't possibly imagine. 
I believe in a God who exists outside the dimensions of time and space, which he created. I believe in a God who can make and break the laws of nature. I believe in a God of miracles. I believe in a God who can make the sun stand still and who can part the waters. I believe in a God who can create the cosmos with four words, let there be light. Four words which, by the way, are still producing in our universe, in an ever-expanding universe, the creative power, the spoken word of Almighty God. I believe in a God who can turn water into wine, who can heal a man born blind. I believe in a God who can raise a man even though he's been dead for four, years, four days. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, another great man of God and scholar, said, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God would smash your small cosmos. Indeed, may the hammer of a higher God smash our tiny little notions of who we perceive God to be. Give him a chance, and I believe Jesus will do just that. Now back to Jefferson. In February of 1804, listen to this carefully, Jefferson went to work with a pair of scissors, literally a pair of scissors, and began creating an abridged version of the Bible minus all of the miracles. He included the teachings of Jesus, but he excluded the miracles. He deleted the virgin birth. He deleted with scissors, cut it out of the text, cut out the resurrection. And all of the 34 distinct miracles that Jesus did in between the virgin birth and the resurrection. If a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived in Jeffersonian scripture. But the miracle did not. Let me give you some examples. The man who was healed on the Sabbath, the man with a withered hand, healed on the Sabbath. In Jefferson's gospel, he still offers commentary on the Sabbath and the importance of keeping the Sabbath. But the man's hand is left unhealed. Now, when Jefferson got to John's gospel, where we have been spending our time the last several weeks, and that's, uh, and that's filled with seven miracles of Jesus, Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with the stone rolled in front of the tomb of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. Now, when you hear that, it's hard for some of us to imagine, right? How can you take a pair of scissors to the sacred text of Scripture? Part of us says, you just can't do that. But wait a minute. Let me just push on us just for a minute. My hunch is that all of us are guilty of doing the very same thing from time to time. What promises have we stopped claiming? What miracles are you not believing God for anymore? When did you take the scissors to them? What dream have you given up on? We cut and we paste just like Jefferson did. We pick, we choose, we rationalize the verses that are just too radical. We scrub down the verses that are too supernatural. We put scripture on the chopping block of human logic and we end up with a neutered gospel. God help us. God forgive us. God forbid. So listen to me carefully. When you subtract the miracles like Jefferson did, what you are left with is a wise yet weak Jesus. He's kind and compassionate, but, but the raw power is missing. When you, when you cut out the miracles, you cut Jesus off at the knees. And I think that's the very Jesus that many people follow in the, in the contemporary American church. That's not genuine Jesus, and it's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Let me give you a couple of verses of Scripture. I want to put these on the screen for you so you'll see them. The first is in 2 Timothy 3.5. Note how so- sober these verses are. There are those who have an outward religion but they repudiate the power thereof. 
That's a, that's a serious indictment, isn't it? All the trappings of religion, but none of the, none of the faith or, or actual experience of the supernatural presence of God in our lives. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. And it says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And not just power, wonder-working power. How many of you hear that song playing right now? There's power, power, wonder-working power. How many of you want to sing it right now? <laughs> you can probably sing it. Now, here's my point. If you follow Jesus long enough, you follow Jesus long enough, and you follow him far enough, you're going to experience miracles. I don't know when, I don't know where, I'm not sure how. That's above my pay grade. But if you'll follow Jesus long enough and you follow him far enough, you will be able to report miracles happening in your life and through your life. There's a verse of scripture that blows my mind. It's in John's gospel again, chapter 14, verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. He said, whoever believes in me will do the work that I've been doing and even greater things than these. Now that's, that's out there. That's wild. That's amazing. Greater things, right? What Jesus is reminding us is, look, you're going to care for some poor people. That's what I've been doing. You're going to wash some feet. That's what I've been doing. You're going to offend some Pharisees, some religious folks. That's what I've been doing. And by the way, you're going to also traffic in miracles, not just as a witness to miracles, but also a catalyst for miracles. You're going to be a person that God uses to actually be a miracle for someone else. And isn't that what we've been saying all these weeks? You are somebody else's miracle. The, the activation of your faith and the outreach of your hand in someone's life can become a miracle for them. And that's what we hear Jesus challenges to consider. And before we look at this seventh miracle, let's consider the ones that we've rehearsed the last six weeks. The first one we found in John's Gospel, chapter 2, this was turning water into wine. Not just any kind of wine, but this was extra fine wine. It was the best wine. And not just a bottle or two, it was about 757 bottles of the very best wine. And what we learned here is like every other atom in the universe, water molecules have to submit to the authority of their creator. Water into wine, as it turns out, isn't an easy thing to do very quickly. And Jesus did it. In John 4, we see that Jesus healed the nobleman's son from distance. He's Lord uh, of latitude and longitude. The one who created the world knows no geographical nor chronological limits. He said to the nobleman's son, go your way, your son is healed. So from distance and time, Jesus healed, which means that there is no here or there. He is here and there and everywhere. Listen to me. There is no past. There is no present. There is no future because he is I am. So there is no time, there is no distance that hinders him in any way from doing what he wants to do. In John chapter 5, we read about a man who Jesus reversed 38 years of pain. He was an invalid with a simple command. Take up your mat and walk. Astonishing miracle. In verse in, in chapter 6 of John's gospel, Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We learn that five plus two does not equal seven. Not in God's kingdom, not when Jesus gets involved. Indeed, five plus two equals 5,000, remainder 12. This is an amazing multiplication of food kind of miracle. And then the one who turned water into wine in, in John 6 defies the density and viscosity of water when he walks on water. And I say, why not? Why not walk on water? This is what God can do. 
Then last week we said it in John 9, Jesus does something that has never been done before. The Bible reports that he has healed a man who was born blind. Now listen, no one in the history of the world has ever seen that. A man born blind. Any, any person who's been to medical school and has studied human anatomy and the development of the body can tell you that if a person is born blind, it indicates that there's some kind of physical disability or, or genetic uh, uh, deformity that, that would create this blindness. Either the eyeball itself can't receive the light or the optic nerve isn't generating the synapses necessary to get to the visual cortex. There's either a hardware breakdown or a software breakdown or both in this man. And, and medical science would say it is impossible for that man to see. He was born blind. But Jesus uh, puts some mud in the man's face and tells him to go to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Bible says he came back seeing. There's a big uproar about that. And the man finally concludes, look, you guys can debate the theology of this experience all you want. Here's all I can tell you. Once I was blind, now I can see. (laughs) Don't you love that? It's just great. And so this is what we learn. And now we finally come to John chapter 11. And this is the seventh miracle. And this is, this is the grave robber versus the grim reaper. The grave robber versus the grim reaper. And I, let me put this statement on the screen because it's vital to the, and central to what we want to consider tonight. He is not just the God who makes bad people good. He is the God who brings dead people to life. Not just bad to good, but dead to life. Not just bad to better to good, but dead, lost, dead, undone, hopeless, gone, to life. Four days dead, now to life. A man named Nazareth was sick. He was from Bethany. He had two sisters, Martha and Mary. And they send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love, Lazarus, our brother, is sick. And when he heard this, verse 4, Jesus said the sickness is not To end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified in it. Now, here's the first thing we learn from this story. And if you're following the outline on your notes there, this is the first point. And it would make a good tweet. It's less than 140 characters. So here it is. Never put a comma where God puts a period. Never put a comma where God puts a period. And never put a period where God puts a comma. Lazarus had been dead four days. And that's where we would put a period, wouldn't you agree? Four, he's four days dead, period. But not Jesus. He said, no, 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 this sickness is not unto death. Je- Lazarus died, but it's not over until God says it's over, <laughs> apparently. And I think all of us hit spots in our lives where we think it's over. Isn't that true? Maybe you've been dating someone and that dissolves and you just think, well, that's it. My, that kind of relationship is not possible for any, me anymore. It's over. Maybe you've made a mistake, and that mistake kind of dogs you and haunts you and hangs over you, and you just think, well, that's the end of any progressive, meaningful living for me after this kind of mistake, so it's over. Maybe you've lost a loved one, or maybe you've lost a job, or maybe you lost your life savings. You thought, well, after this kind of loss, there's no reason to try. There's no reason to go on. It's all over from here, period. But wait a minute. Don't put a period where God puts a, puts a comma. Oswald Chambers said this. I want you to see this on the screen. Another great theologian, Christian thinker. Oswald Chambers said, Sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we're too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. It's good, isn't it? I'm going to tell you that I've learned in my life 
Many, many times now, but before God adds, he usually subtracts. Do you have an ear for this? Before God multiplies, he usually prunes. Before God brings something to life, he usually allows something else to die. Something to that. We have a tendency to hit the panic button when God starts subtracting or where there's a pruning or where something is dying. But I want to tell you that if it may be that God is getting ready to do something in your life that you've never seen before. Maybe God's posturing you, preparing you for something greater than you can even imagine. We may have put a period there, but God just said, no, no, that's a comma in that spot. Don't give up. Don't give out. Now, here's the second thought. And again, on your outline, if you're following that, I want you to get this. Two lives. The word you need there is two. Two lives. Have you ever wondered what happened to Lazarus after Jesus resuscitated him after four days dead? Ever wonder about him? I mean, did he, did he live another week? Two weeks? Tradition offers two versions of what happened to Lazarus. We don't know for sure what happened, but tradition offers these two. One tradition holds that he and his sisters made their way to the island of Cyprus, where he became the first bishop of that region. The church of St. Lazarus actually exists today in the modern city of Larnaca, and it's believed by some to be built over his second tomb. Isn't it interesting to hear that? (laughs) Built over a man's second grave? There was one grave there in Jerusalem, in Bethany, and now there's a second grave somewhere else. It's curious, isn't it? And that tradition suggested he lived another 30 years. A second a second story holds that Lazarus and his sisters ended up in Marseille, France, where Lazarus, and you've got to love this, was actually hiding in a tomb during years of persecution there, and that he eventually died a martyr's death at the order of Emperor Domitian. And I don't know which tradition to believe or if either of them has any substance at all, but here's my point. Either way, Jesus gave Martha and Mary their brother back, and Lazarus lived two lives. He lived two lives. I want to tell you right now that God intended you to live two lives. Now hear me. Listen to this. There comes a moment when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that we were dead in our sin, but he brings us to life. And, And not just brings us to life. He said, I came that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. And the word abundant there means to be super abundant in quantity and superior in quality. Super abundant in quantity, which means forget 70 or 80 years. I mean, what about eternity? Think about eternity. God has given us life that lasts forever. Super abundant in quantity and superior in quality. In other words, the promise is that living for Jesus there is more joy, there's more purpose, there's more peace, there's more power than you could ever imagine. And that's what he came to give you, a second life, a better life. Now, I don't know how long Lazarus lived after he died. Best guess seems to be about 30 years. But one way or the other, Jesus gave him a second life. And I want to tell you that the grave robber wants to do for you the same thing that he, had, that he did for Lazarus. He wants to give you a second chance. Wants to give you a new beginning. Wants to give you a second life. Two lives. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, now you would say, well, he's a day late. He's a dollar short. I mean, that's too late. Four days. Hmm. It's too late. 
Let me tell you what I think is going on here. Jesus got word that he was sick. But he said, oh, he's not going to die. And so he lingers. Jesus could have gotten there. You know he could have gotten there on time before Lazarus died. You know he could have. If he had to, he could have walked through walls. He could have walked on water. He could have, he could have translated himself from point A to point B. Because I think God can, can bend the laws of nature. That he's supranatural. That he, he, could, he could have gotten there on time. Of course he could have. But everyone had already seen him do the miracles that we've described. Walking on water and multiplying food and healing the sick. But no one had seen him resuscitate a guy who had been dead for four days. Now he's about to demonstrate his resurrection power. In verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. It's an interesting turn of phrase. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And while we hear hear Martha concerned that he's too late, she still has some hope. He said, even now, I know, even now, even now, even after four days dead, even now, even in this moment, even after four days, even now I know God would answer whatever prayer you pray. Isn't that fascinating? You know, when do you give up hope? After day one, day two, day three, day four? When do you give up hope? When do you turn it loose? When do you let it go? At what point do you give up? Martha is holding out some kind of hope. And there are going to be moments where it seems like you are out of touch with reality. You keep hanging on to something. You keep hanging on to God and hanging on to your faith. And maybe you've heard a promise from God and no one else has heard it. And you keep hanging on to that hope. People around you are saying, come on, you've got to let that go. You've got to turn that dream loose. You've got to let go of that whole idea. Listen, it's done. It's over. It's dead. But you're hearing another voice. From another dimension that is greater than the ultimate reality that most people live in with their logic and reason and their five senses. And you've actually heard a voice from beyond the natural world. And you have been given hope. And you say, but even now, even now, even now, God could do a miracle. And you hang on to that. She doesn't put a period there. She put a comma. I want to tell you something. Even when it seems like God is four days late. That may still be too soon to give up, especially when it involves him. Now, let's just jump to the end of the story. End of the story. Last, last point. If you're following on the outline, you want to get, make sure you get all the, the blanks filled in. The last one is doing the Lazarus. Doing the Lazarus. <laughs> Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, we assume the outcome because we know how the story ends, right? Jesus comes out of the tomb. Jesus knows that he's about to reveal a dimension of his power and glory that no one has seen before. And so he calls Lazarus out. And what a moment that must have been. Can you imagine? Can you even get your mind around what was going on there? I mean, Jesus had taken Martha and Mary and these friends and and other family members and members of the village, and he took them all out to the graveyard of their experience. Do you have a graveyard, your experience? 
took them all out there. And these words were ringing. One sister said, if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, where, where was that faith placed? Faith in yesterday. If you would just been here a few days ago, this wouldn't have happened. We have faith to believe you. Jesus said, well, I am the resurrection. And then the other sisters, yeah, well, yeah, we know our brother Lazarus. He'll live again in the resurrection. What is that faith? That's faith in tomorrow. That's faith in the future. And I have faith in, in a God of four days ago. I have faith in a God who's going to keep us in the resurrection in eternal life. I got faith for yesterday and I got faith for tomorrow. But Jesus spoke a word in the now. He spoke a word in the contemporary moment of their ultimate reality, which is right now. And let me just remind all of you, the only reality we have is right now. This is it. Today. This moment. You know, this assembly of people will never assemble again like this. This moment will never happen again. Here we are. This is the moment. And Jesus spoke a word in the contemporary moment of their reality when he said, Lazarus, come out. And you know what happened? You know, they'd moved the stone away four days. Can you imagine moving it away and, and then stepping away? Because that's got to be difficult. But Jesus called Lazarus' name, and out he came. I, I would imagine, if you can comprehend being there, can you imagine? What, what people were doing, I, th- I would imagine people gasped. People cried out. They screamed out. I believe people began to weep. I believe some people probably fell on the ground, just stunned, astonished by the moment. It was a, an incredible moment. And I, I, can't, I just wonder what kind of ex- response I would have if I were there. I would you know, I just find myself going, wow, glory to God. Glory to God. He would have had about 100 pounds of grave clothes on. Think about this. His head would have been wrapped. The visual image is a mummy. Can you imagine seeing a dead person? Look, he didn't walk out. He's mummified. He didn't walk out. He hopped out. He's pogoing. Pogoing out. Darn, 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 darn. I mean, after their amazement, me, maybe the people saw that and, they, and someone thought it was, it was funny. Can you see one of the old guys just going, <laughs> check him out. He's hopping. The mummy's hopping. Maybe, maybe they laughed about it that day. Maybe some of them laughed about it until the day they died. You know what? At dance parties, they were doing the Lazarus. That's what they, it was a new... He's the God who turns sorrow into dancing. He turns mourning into laughing. He turns what is dead into life. Takes what's dead, brings it to life. This is such a beautiful moment. Now let me get serious with you for a moment. This miracle doesn't just foreshadow the resurrection of Christ himself. This miracle foreshadows your resurrection and my resurrection. You know what? When we sin, our soul is wrapped in grave clothes. Sin buries us alive. Sin makes a mummy out of us. And if you keep sinning, it'll weigh you down like a hundred pounds of grave clothes. That's 
way life goes, but Jesus is calling you out. It could be that Jesus is calling your name. You may be burdened down and weighted down with all the burdens of life and all the weight of sin, accumulated sin. It may be like 100 pounds on your back, but God is calling you out. Jesus is calling your name. Sometimes it's helpful to personalize this promise of Scripture. Some of us this weekend, I believe, is going to hear God calling your name. Maybe this is your day. Maybe this is your moment. Tonight is your time to say yes. Jesus makes a bold claim right here in John's Gospel, chapter 11. I want to put these verses on, you, on the screen for you. Verses 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whosoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? Let me ask you, who says something like that? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever lives and believes in me will never. Who says that? I mean, really, who, who would say such a thing? I'll tell you who, someone who has done all these miracles and then subsequent to him saying this proves his power over death by calling Lazarus out of the grave. Then he asked Martha the question, do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes. Yes, Lord. And the sweetest profession of faith in all of the scriptures, she simply says, yes. Yes, Lord. I'm the resurrection and the life. And He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes. Yes, Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. One little yes can change your life. One little yes can change your eternity. Uh Uh-huh. It's true. I'm going to invite you because I believe God may be calling some of you. He may be calling your name, calling you out tonight saying this is your time this is your day this is your this is your moment you've been bound up long enough by the consequences of life and choices and failure and sin it's time for you to be free time to you for you to be alive time for you to know the abundant life that God has promised eternal life and superior life And if you're hearing Jesus call your name tonight, then I want to pray with you. And this is a perfect way to end this series that we've been talking about the miracles of Jesus. Because Jesus can take what's impossible in your life and make it possible. It's just too too late for me. No. I'm too far from God. No. You don't know what I've done. Please, don't flatter yourself. You're not the biggest, baddest sinner who's ever lived. I promise you, you're not. Just get in line. We all get it. That's why we all need help. We need hope. We need a Savior. And He has the power over death. And He alone can offer you hope where there's been no hope. And you can receive His life and His power even now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness. 
We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the sinless Son of God. Lord, we freely confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that we've been living in the grave of our mistakes, our disappointments, our sin. And Lord, we're not able to get out by ourselves, but you're calling us out. You died on a cross so that we could come alive and so that our sin could be nailed to that cross forever. So right now, I pray that you would forgive my sin. Listen to me, friend. Make that your prayer right now. I'm saying the words. You believe it in your heart. I pray that you would forgive my sin. God, I pray that you would not just make what is bad in me good, but that you would take what's dead, bring it to life. Is that your prayer tonight? Friend, listen. Make that your prayer. Lord, take what's dead and bring it to life. And so right now, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to know his life. I want to know his forgiveness. I want to have his hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?